fold nature of how it's used, Lord, God, Lord. That's where I'll stop to get people to think, oh, wow. Just like the same thing is with um, husband, wife, child, you know, for the triune nature of God or father, or father, mother, children, right? I don't push that beyond uh, in a debate. We're beyond that. I just want people to think about it. We're made in God's image. God is three persons. When you see God create us in plurality, he creates two, but then he says to multiply. And so father and, uh, father and mother and children will be the threefold manifestation of humanity. Humanity, you'll always be in that role. Father, mother, child. And you can, you know, complicate it by getting all deep and then trying to now say that the, um, the Holy Spirit is the mother, but we don't do that. Okay, so now, uh, sorry that you guys lost us. Here we are starting again. Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is in jail because he's been arrested in Rome, uh, Jerusalem and brought to Rome. Timothy, his spiritual son, is visiting with him. We're going to hear all the honors that he pays to Timothy in just a little bit. Uh, they are servants of Christ Jesus. So no matter how great you are, you're always a servant of Jesus. We have to always remember that, okay, guys, that we never become greater than servants. The greatest position that we can have in the body of Christ is as a servant. Together with the overseers and deacons, what's another word for overseers? Elders, thank you, elders and deacons. Now, this is appropriate for us to model our church after, isn't it? Because if we're always thinking that the role is pastors, the pastors, we're not understanding how these churches were organized. They were organized by elders and deacons. And you can see how when you don't organize the church the right way, how it can go off. Because when they started making one supreme leader, then the, the, the priest office began to develop. And then the supreme leader of the priests became, became the, the bishop eventually of Rome, you know? And so now you have all of this hierarchy that was never really uh, found in the, the body of Christ. It was a plurality of servants, <coughs> excuse me, serving one another in, in their relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, we come here <clears throat> to Paul's standards greeting, which is the key to understanding how he uses the titles God and Lord. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the joy of Christianity, having grace and having peace. Jews have that saying, shalom aleichem, um, that means peace be upon you. And the Muslims took it from Jews and Christians and say, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. But notice that the Christian adds to that the, the greeting of grace, grace. Now, we have grace through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the source of all grace. That's an amazing uh, thing to think about, that you and I have grace and peace that can only be found in Jesus Christ. No other religion offers that. So the best way to greet one another, if you want to be biblical, instead of saying God bless you, you know, God favor you, God do good, th can do good things for you is what we mean by blessing, is you could say grace and peace. May God forgive you of any sins you've done. May he empower you to do what's right. Thank you so much. I was just going to ask for that. Um, and peace, Irene, if you know anybody named Irene, it comes from the Greek word Irene, that you would be at peace with God without enmity, without strife or his wrath upon you, and that you would be at peace with others and with yourself, be at peace with yourself on the inside. Now, does Paul use, <clears throat> let me ask it again, sorry, are the titles God and Lord 
both used by Paul to represent the divine nature. Yes. Going to the Shema, please. The Shema is the prayer of the Jewish people that they were supposed to recite every day. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, as a matter of fact, I believe three times a day. Don't do it there. Do it in the one that's open, please. You need to go to the open one. Thank you. There you go. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Everybody should memorize it. And if you can learn it in, in Hebrew, it would be really cool. Uh, right now, I can't do it, but I have practiced it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I personally believe that this represents the Father, Son, and Spirit because Lord God, Lord is used three times. If you don't believe that the persons are being given to us here, then at least you can be intrigued by the threefold repetition of Lord God, Lord. You can be intrigued by that. And we know what the Hebrew word Lord is. And what is the Hebrew word Lord? Yahweh, thank you, or Jehovah. That's the best ways that we think to pronounce it. So Yahweh, our Elohim, our God, Yahweh is Ahad, is one. Now, oftentimes people try to say, well, that just means one as in one person. That's not what it means. One can mean one nation. How many people are in one nation? A lot of people. So Ahad can mean one singular, like there's, there is one uh, pizza here. Well, that's even a bad example because a pizza can be cut into many parts, right? So I could say here's one phone. But I can also say there's one phone store or one phone company. And when we go back to Genesis, we learn when the first time it was used that the two shall become one in marriage, the two shall become ahad. So two can be one, can be ahad. So if someone tries to say, well, you shouldn't believe in the triune nature of God, the Bible says he's one, and now they assume that that just means he's one person, Show them in that very text that it's repeated three times, Lord, God, Lord, Lord twice, God once, right? And ahad also can mean complex unity, like two becoming one. Ahad, one nation of Israel made up of many tribes. Ahad, okay? So this does not take away from the belief of many persons in the God nature. Now going back to Philippians, please, in the notes, we see that Paul is giving us the key to the understanding of how they are going to communicate about God. They're going to call the Father God and Jesus Lord. But for them, there is still only one God. There is only one Lord. But the persons of God can share that. The Father can be called Lord. Lord the Father. But why does he keep saying God the Father? Because that was a comfortable saying, and the Holy Spirit is inspiring what they know so it can be comfortable for them as they're learning about the Son. You know God as your Father, but you also know Yahweh. You also know there's Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. Yahweh, the word of Yahweh, comes to the prophets. Yahweh appears to Abraham. Yahweh wrestles with Jacob. You also know about Yahweh. Because it doesn't say, um, oftentimes, God appeared. In those passages, let me just give you, go to the uh, app there and go to Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. Notice it doesn't say God appeared to Abraham. Who does it say appeared to Abraham? The Lord appeared to Abraham. So this is very intentional. Obviously, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we have to understand the intention of the Holy Spirit for us to know what he's building upon. You won't see this representation of God coming with us and being called God in that way. Go now to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Who did Isaiah see? 
He says, I saw the Lord. And they were saying, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now you notice right there, the Lord is not all caps, but we notice that it's referring to Yahweh. Yahweh can also be called Adonai, Adon, and be Yahweh at the same time. So sometimes they'll try to trip you up there. But who is the one he saw? It's the one that they're calling out to, holy is the Lord Almighty, okay? Because if you go to the Greek word here, I mean the Hebrew word, go and uh, right-click on it, please, you'll see that it is um, Adon. And they'll say, well, that's not Yahweh that he saw high and lifted up, but pull back, pull back, so we we can see the text again. Thank you. It says, I saw the Lord high and seated on a throne. Well, how many thrones are there in heaven high and seated up that are called the Lord? And that's just so clear. But you'd have to read it for these people because they don't want to, to listen. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And, with, and above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is The Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now we know that's obviously Yahweh because that's all caps. Now keep going down, please, in the context. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried out. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now go to the Z here. Go to the footnote, uh, the reference here. And let's see if it has it in John. And it doesn't. A lot of these footnotes do not help us. Uh, it's going to be John what? John chapter 10. John, uh, Isaiah saw Jesus. John. Go to now John chapter 12, verse 41. These connections that we're making are connections that were made by the authors of Scripture. Isaiah made a prophecy, shared a prophecy with um, the people of God, and Jesus, I believe, is repeating it. Go up a few verses. I believe it's, okay, it's John explaining why Jesus is not being, uh, John is explaining why the Jews are not believing in Jesus. And so here's this prophecy that Isaiah got. Now look at verse 41 of John chapter 12. Isaiah said this, his prophecy about hard-hearted Jews and about his people being a mess. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now go back to Isaiah 6. Where else? It, go, go back. You should already have it there, right? Don't, didn't you keep it? That's why we want to have multiple tabs open, right? Keep those tabs open so we can go back and forth. Thank you. In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Who did John say that he saw? Jesus, who is the Lord Almighty, Yahweh. Do you see the connection there? Okay, so go back to Genesis 18. 18. Let's see it there, please. Yeah, you got to keep these, uh, these things open. Oh, thank you. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Now, it's not God appeared to Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Now go to Exodus chapter 33. I know we're running out of tabs, but use that one right there. That's fine. There you go. Exodus 33, verse 10. So I've showed you in Genesis, who appears to Moses? Let's go start in verse 1. Go to verse 1. Sorry. Let's stay right there. The Lord said to Moses. Does everybody see how important the term the Lord is throughout the Bible? The term the Lord. Does everybody see that? Now go to uh, verse 5 there. 
The Lord had said to Moses, the Lord. Everybody get that? Now go to verse 10. Uh, Verse 11, rather. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. Does it say God would speak to Moses face to face? It says Lord. And so we know Lord is a significant title, name, term for God appearing and speaking. We've shown it three times now. Genesis 19, the Lord appears. We see in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord. We go to Exodus chapter 33, the Lord said, the Lord said, and the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. Go back to the notes in Philippians. So when we see the word Lord here, are we now supposed to think to ourselves as a good historical, grammatical, uh, exegetical student who is taking the historical, grammatical understanding of the Bible in its context, are we now supposed to think Lord there means like Lord of the manor, you know? Lord Barry of some place out there in England, you know, Lord Barry, here he comes, you know, I just thought of some weird name. You know, is that what we're supposed to be thinking? Not at all. You're supposed to be thinking to yourself, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the one these, one, uh, these saints are seeing? They're seeing Jesus. John told us who he saw, who Isaiah saw, Jesus So when I go back now through the Old Testament, I have a key. I have a key to unlock what's going on. So most of the time, if not all of the time, when the Lord is saying this and the Lord is doing this and the Lord is here and the Lord is there and the Lord appeared in the burning bush and the Lord spoke to this, who is appearing? Who is doing all of this? Jesus, the pre-incarnate Son of God. We know he gets that name as he comes in the flesh. So he's the Son, the pre-incarnate Word, the Logos. He is appearing. So these are the terms of divinity. Now, when people ask me, why doesn't the Holy Spirit appear in those places? I believe it's because of the role of the Holy Spirit. Now go to John chapter 14. I get to do this over. It wasn't 16. It's John 14. Some, some uh, you know, Professors and scholars are like, uh, you know, encyclopedias, but I don't have that gift. John 14, it's going to be at the end of John 14. Last time I said John 16, but go to John 14. Here at the end, sorry, it was, you know, just a little confusing. Sometimes I think to myself, you know, where is it at? And I try to guess it so we don't have to look it up when we get there. But if we look here at John chapter 14, starting in verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So notice that the Father and the Son are going to have an active relationship with the believers, making the believers their home, okay? So the persons of the Father and Son are going to be central here. The Father and Son are going to do this. Now, Look at verse 25. All of this I have spoken while I'm with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, the preeminence here is Father and Son again, sending the advocate, he will remind you of everything that what? I have said. So the advocate is going to represent the Father and the Son. That's why we do not need to acknowledge the Holy Spirit as often as we do the Father and the Son because the Holy Spirit is the one giving us the voice and the presence of the Father and the Son. 
He's not a force. He is a person. But yet, his role is to be a representative of the Father and Son, and to us, an advocate, a helper. And so he is not going to be at the forefront of Paul's letters. So when he's talking, he's going to talk like how Jesus talked. Jesus talked continually about his Father, about his Father. So when you go back and look at Jesus' teachings, you would say, Jesus and the Father, Jesus and the Father, Jesus and the Father. Well, where is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is with us, giving to us the presence of the Father and the Son, speaking for them to us. Amen? That's how we should see the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you go back to the notes, will we see that the Holy Spirit begins to do that and appear in the, gospel, uh, in the epistle for, for that purpose? Absolutely. Go to chapter 1 in our notes, and then you'll see the role of the Holy Spirit here. The role of the Holy Spirit comes in verse 27. And notice how he is interjected into the conversation. Verse 27, please. That means you have to scroll down. Thank you. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. Does everybody get that? Did you understand what I just said? Okay, now pay attention. What were you guys talking about? A haircut? Okay, let's not talk about haircuts. Let's tie in the role of the Holy Spirit here. Are you tracking with me, Juan? Stand firm in the one Spirit. Why does now Paul bring up the Spirit in that way? Because for Paul, the Spirit is not preeminent as a voice or as a person to be looked at as the source of the message. The Holy Spirit is looked at as the representative of the Father and the Son and looked at as our advocate. So he's not going to continually talk about the Holy Spirit as he would talk about the Father and the Son. But is the Spirit important to us? Absolutely. Is the Spirit a person? Yes. Is the Spirit with us and abiding with us and representing to us the Father and the Son, unifying us, empowering us? Absolutely. And that's why if you continue on down into chapter 2, not you know knowing that there's not chapter and verses there, but you have to now go to the, the, the Bible... Go to chapter 2, look at it again, now in verse 1. Therefore, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now he says, you know, if these things are with you in the Spirit, then do such and such a thing. His acknowledgement of the Father and the Son It's not taking away the Spirit's power or the Spirit as a person equal with the Father and the Son, but it is the role of the Holy Spirit. He's acknowledging the role of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit is doing what he is sent to do. And let's continue on to uh, chapter 3. Again, mentioning the Holy Spirit and his role with us, not just as a force, but as a person. I thought it was chapter 3, but I believe now it's going to be uh, chapter 4. Yes, here we go, chapter 4. Hold on, let me see. I'm going to look for the last. I believe there's three. I thought there was three references. Let me look it up here. Chapter 4, verse 
this is going a little bit off the script, but I just thought it would be good to bring up the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives. Was there another one and two? I might have missed it there. Let me just uh, check my notes. Okay, go to the one that Josh is talking about, please, while I uh, reference it here. Yes, and the one that I was thinking about is, um, okay, what is the one you were referring to? Yeah, no, that's the human spirit, being one in spirit and attitude. So that's not referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, so there's the, the two that we talked about, 127, 2 verse 1, and then there is chapter 3 verse 3. So I had gone past it. Here, here it is. For it is we who are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit who boast in Christ. Do you see the Trinity there? Do you see the triune nature of God? But once again, is he going to be emphasizing the Spirit of God the same way he does the Father and the Son? No, because the Father and the Son are the source of the Spirit and are the voice of the Spirit. And then, uh, yeah, in chapter 4, verse 23, is your Spirit again. Yeah, so there's only three references to the Holy Spirit, 127. 2 verse 1 and 3 verse 3. And uh, the ones that are in chapter 127 and 2 verse 1, both are showing the role of the Spirit unifying, keeping the body of Christ together. And then in chapter 3 verse 3, that the Holy Spirit is there uh, circumcising us in the heart by his power, changing us and rearranging us so that we don't need to live by the letter of the law, but we live by the power of the Spirit. So going back now to chapter 1, we see that the grace and peace that come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, get this, is already assuming it's going to flow through the Holy Spirit. Now do we see him talk that way in other epistles? So if somebody goes, well, where's the Holy Spirit here? You know, because sometimes I tell people, let's just stay to a book. Prove your point in a book. And they may use that against us and go, well, where's the Holy Spirit right to be in? Well, you walk them through the book and you show them the Holy Spirit. But then also I like to contain people to an author. So I say, well, let's, let's go to uh, 1 Thessalonians. Just a few uh, books over and everybody will be able to see it. Look at 1 Thessalonians. And this is probably by God's grace uh, the, the, the book that we'll get into for Sundays. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 19. It says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Well, hold on. Can you quench a force? No, do not quench gravity. Do not, gra do, no, do not quench some other force, you know. The, lights, the speed of light, do not quench it. No, but you can quench or resist or hold back against a person. So the Spirit has a pre predominant role in the church. Don't quench him. Don't put him out in this place. And then he goes on to tell them, by this, do, you know, uh, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but, uh, but test them so that you know uh, whether or not they come from the Lord. And then if you go into 2 Thessalonians, just a few books over, to see the role of the Holy Spirit there, Look at um, chapter, uh, let me just see here. I want to, okay, go to chapter 2, verse 13 of Thessalonians. 
But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as our first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit or of the Spirit. There is the triune nature of God revealed again. Now, I can show much more clearer than that, but I just wanted to show that in his descriptions and in his talking, he can bring up the Holy Spirit just like he does the Father and the Son. And I will show you another one when he does the threefold in 1 Corinthians, and he actually prays to the Holy Spirit, because sometimes they say, well, does he ever pray to the Holy Spirit? And he does. He does it in a benediction prayer at the end of one of his points. Let me get it right here. All the way of love. Is it 2 Corinthians? Let's go there. Second Corinthians. There we go. Chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians, verse 14. The same way he talked in Ephesians, or excuse me, in Philippians about grace and peace. Notice how, and by the way, that's a prayer. You're praying for people when you say, God bless you. Do you know that? You're speaking to God to bless them. Did you know that? That's why when we talk to Muslims and they say the word Muhammad and then they say, peace be upon him, we say, why are you praying for him? I thought he was a prophet. He should already be in good standing with God. Why are you asking more peace to be on him? So we show him that, we show them that not even Muhammad had security of salvation. Because those blessings, when we bless each other, they're literally prayers. God bless you. Do I have the power on my own without praying to, to do anything on behalf of God? No. But through praying to God, speaking to God, I can bless you in the name of Christ. So when, even when we say God bless you, it is truly in its source a prayer. We are saying at that moment, God bless them. That's what we're saying. So notice here at the end of Paul's letter, he says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Show me any place where Paul incorporates angels or humans into a doxology, into something that's worshipful or prayerful. Never. So there he is praying to the Holy Spirit. He's saying, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. If I am saying that to you as a declarative prayer, remember, not all prayers are requests. Prayers are also declarative. The Lord is my shepherd is a prayer. It's a psalm. Psalms are songs. What are songs? Songs are prayers, right? So when he says, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you, can he do that without entreating God? No, he has to entreat God for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be there. He doesn't command God like outside of the, the, the context of prayer. He has no right to do that. But in prayer, he can, he can summon the Holy Spirit. He can ask the Holy Spirit to do certain things, right? And so there you see that his greetings, his endings, which is, would be like a doxology, it's, you know, and a prologue would be the thing that comes at the beginning, a doxology is the thing that comes at the end. And, and here we, we have these times where the Holy Spirit is brought up. But does he always have to be? He doesn't because we know his role in what he's doing. So going back to the notes, Philippians, grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Could he have added right there and fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Yes, he could have. He could have said grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He could have added that in there. And he does whenever it's beneficial to him. Just zoom in just a little bit more, please. 
Now we have the key to understanding not only the scriptures, the New Testament, but I believe the Old Testament about God and the Lord and who the Holy Spirit is. Just a little bit more so you get to that edge. Thank you. I thank my God every time I remember you. Who do you think he's referring to there? He's probably referring to who? No. I thank my God. Who did he just, who did he just tell you in the prior verse is a part of the key to understanding this? I thank my God. Who is the God he's thanking you? Do you think right there? No. Come on, think about it. Who do you think he's, he's uh, thanking there? It's a little, we're just helping my brother. It took me a long time to train, to train up Oscar here, but now we're going to train up Marco. Okay, right here. Who does it say the father is? Okay. I don't know why you guys, either I am a bad teacher at this or you guys just don't pay attention. Seriously, it's got to be one or the other now. Because I just don't understand. Like, I've repeated it so many different times, guys. Like, honestly, I've repeated it so many different times. I don't get it. I mean, I just, I've explained to you over and over. I've started from the back to the front, to the front, to the back. I've gone all over. Right, Michelle? You guys probably listen to these. I've explained it so many times. Who is Paul going to be referring to in the persons of the Trinity as God in his letters? Why? Why do we make that assumption? Yeah, God, our Father. Now, we do believe it comes from the Shema and helps us understand. So, so generally speaking, when God is there, is it going to refer to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all collectively, or generally the Father individually as a person, right? And when he talks about the Lord, he's going to be primarily talking about who? Jesus. Now, when you go back into the Old Testament, because remember, he doesn't want you to just be like, you know, somebody that goes, hey, Paul's just making up things. Thank you, guys. He doesn't want you to think, hey, just Paul's making up stuff. How does he now, because you're going to go back and read the Old Testament if you were a pagan. You're going to start for the first time and start reading it. And if you're a Jew, you've been reading it. Who does he want you to see being referenced to as the Lord all throughout the scriptures? Jesus. That's who he wants you to understand. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Who do you think uh, Paul thought appeared to Abraham? Jesus. That's why he keeps referring to him as Lord. Now, Mormons will go as far to say that actually the Hebrew word Elohim is only the Father and the Hebrew word Yahweh is only Jesus and that those are the distinct names for them in the Old Testament. And that is incorrect. That is, in, that is ignoramus as well, because the Father is called Yahweh. Yahweh is also called uh, Elohim, just in that Shema. Hero is the Lord our God, the, the Lord your God. So the Yahweh, your Elohim, is one. You know, so you can't, you can't now try to make it an always statement. But generally speaking, how does Paul want us to look back into the Old Testament with these titles in mind, God and Lord, God and Yahweh, Elohim and Yahweh. He wants us to think Father and Son, Father and Son, Father and Son. And from his other letters and the way he describes the Holy Spirit, how does he want us to think about the Holy Spirit? He wants us to think about the Holy Spirit as our advocate, the one who goes from us, from earth to heaven on our behalf, and then comes as a representative from heaven to earth on behalf of the Father and Son. That's how he wants you to think about the Holy Spirit. 
He doesn't want you to think about the Holy Spirit as the source and the primary persons from whom the gospel has come or the message of redemption. He wants you to think about the Holy Spirit as that person that unifies us together, that regenerates us, that does the work of the Father and the Son and is our advocate. That's how he's wanting you to see the Holy Spirit. So they are equal all in nature, just like a plumber and an electrician and an architect are all equal in nature, though they do different things. But if we're talking about the building, most of the time we're talking to the architect, right? We're not talking to the plumber and electrician. And if you want to even make it more specific, you could say architect, contractor, and electrician. Who are you talking about more in this this idea of remodeling a building? The architect and the contractor. Architect and the contractor. There is an electrician there, and he's unifying everything together so that it works. He's equal to, in nature... He's equal in nature to the architect and the contractor, but he's not the focus of the building. He's not what everyone is focusing on. What everyone is focusing on to get the assignment done is what the architect and contractor are doing. Can I hear an amen? Amen. And so we shouldn't think it's strange that the Holy Spirit is not always just popping in everywhere where Paul is talking. He does at times remind us the Holy Spirit is worthy of honor and prayer and, and worship and all of those things. And the Holy Spirit is there doing great work in our lives and that we should not be quenching him. Just like how it says in the book of Acts, you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. But in the prior verses, who do they lie to? The Holy Spirit. Let's just go there so we can all see it, right? Go to Acts chapter 6, I believe, or Acts chapter 5, just so you can see the Holy Spirit. Because it says, you know, don't quench the Holy Spirit. But look at Acts chapter 5, at verse 9, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of God? Who was she testing? The Spirit of God, the one who is there as our advocate to help us and the representative of the Father and Son. She's testing him, a person, not a force. How do you test electricity? How do you test, you know, thermodynamics or whatever forces are in the world? How do you test? You can't. You test a person. You can grieve a person. And then it says right here, you know, that, that these things are going to happen to her. Um, oh, excuse me. Uh, go up to verse uh, 3. I started too late. Let's, wrap, let's do it this way, wrap it together. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to what? The Holy Spirit. Now look at the end of uh, verse 4. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And then at the end it says, you have tested the Spirit of God. So who is God among us today on this earth? The Holy Spirit. Is he a person? Yes, can he be lied to? Can he be quenched? Can he be grieved? Can he punish? Yes, can he speak? Yes. We should speak as the Spirit speaks. And so the Holy Spirit has a wonderful relationship with us, and we honor him. It's just we don't know much about him because he's here representing the Father and the Son, and everything we've learned about him, we've learned from the Father and the Son. He doesn't come to us like the Father and Son does. He doesn't come to us like the Daniel vision, and then we see him there, 
in the form of a man or the form of something that we would understand. We only see them in forms of fire and water and doves and wind and things like that. We don't really know much about him, but we, we know that the Father has the image like a man, though he doesn't have flesh and blood, but he appears to us like a man, but we don't see him in his full glory. No one can see him and live. In visions, people can get glimpses of him. We know that the Son has come now in the form of a man, actually bears flesh, but most of the time the Holy Spirit is coming in mysterious ways, and that is his role because it fits perfectly with what he's doing, right? He's not going to show up and shake your hand like the Mormons say and go, I'm the Holy Spirit. He can, he can appear in any form that he wants, but he's appearing to us in forms that are always complementary to his function, and his function is always what? Our advocate, our helper, and he's always the representative of the Father and Son, so when he comes as a fire, what is he doing? He's bringing us the presence of the Father and the Son with power. That's what he's representing to us. The cloud, he's covering us, you know. The dove, he's resting upon Jesus. He's anointing Jesus for the tax ahead. He is wind and move and breath and his movement. He's force in us, but as a person giving us force and breath and, and, and power, not just as a force itself, but as a person using force and energy. And that's the way we're supposed to see him. Now, Paul goes on to say, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers. For all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God the Father is the one he is thanking. We can go back to the notes, please. Because God the Father has started this work in them by the Holy Spirit being implemented through the gospel being preached to us. Please uh, keep up. We're not at that passage anymore. Thank you. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Have we done well, and just highlight as I'm reading, please. Have I done well to show you the key of God being the Father? Highlight those places uh, above, Not the last two verses, seven and eight, please. Why is that a good place to understand that's the Father? Because uh, look at it. It's right for me, you know, to boast about you, to be happy, to be, uh, you know, excited for what God is doing in you because you share in God's grace with me. You share in the grace that comes from who? The Father, right? Now watch, here it comes. God can testify how I long for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. So now we're supposed to keep reading through this letter that God is the Father. God the Father can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's good to always remind us what this is meaning when it says Christ. Christ the anointed one, the king from the line of David, from the flesh, being exalted, right? Jesus is the God-man, the Christ, ruling and reigning as king. And so we, we see that there's a partnership that Paul has with this church, that we see that uh, he's, he's sure that God will complete that good work in them. We know that a person can walk away from the work of God. We believe in backsliding, but God will not fail the work. It's like a plane. The plane will go from here to London, but you can jump out that plane if you want. God will be faithful to complete the journey of that plane. 
Your job is to stay and to remain. And you'll hear that language throughout the book of Philippians. Now somebody may say, well, isn't that just convenient, you Trinitarians, that only God the Father is called God, and then we get the obscure word Lord, which can mean landlord and all these other things. Isn't that just convenient? Why doesn't Paul ever call Jesus God? Well, we just take them right over to Philippians 2, please, in the notes, I mean in the Scriptures. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Who is he now calling in the very nature God? Jesus. So our key has worked and unlocked everything here now. Up until this point, you were just taking me at my word that God was referring to the Father, but now you know it has to be the Father because God and Jesus Christ are brought as two persons here. As he says, I, I'm thankful you have the grace of Jesus, I mean the grace of God with you, and I can testify with the affection of Christ Jesus. So now we know that from this point on, God is going to be referring to the Father and that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But yet, we also know that Jesus is like God the Father in his nature because the word Lord is referring to him as God, who being in his very nature what? God. Jesus is in his very nature what? God. God like the Father. Doesn't that sound just like John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, the Son, right? The Son of God. And He, and the Word was with God, and the Son was with the Father, Father God. And the Word was, God, and the Word is God. And the Word is God like the Father. Doesn't that make sense? Does everybody get that? That's what we're learning. I'm going to be calling on you guys in just a little bit, some of our new folks, to make sure you're getting it. Verse 9, going back to the notes. And this is my prayer. Listen to a prayer of Paul. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God the Father. That's how we're supposed to understand that, aren't we? Once again, we see the two persons there. Does he always bring up Lord when he refers to Jesus? Not always. Does he always bring up the Father when he refers to God? Not always. But we know that Jesus is still Lord from the first verses, don't we? And we know that God is still referring to the Father, don't we? Even though he doesn't say Lord Jesus every time, just like sometimes people pray, Lord Jesus, we just ask you to do this, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, we're really asking, Lord Jesus. Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God, we're praying, Father God. Father God, just in case you forgot who you are, Father God, we'll remind you again, you're Father God. Father God, Father God, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Father God, Lord Jesus. Does he have to go through the scriptures and remind us every single time, God the Father, God the Father, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. So if he says God and doesn't say the Father, we know it's the Father. If he says Jesus and he hasn't says Lord, we still know Jesus is Lord, do, do we not? Right? And we even know why that's going to happen here in just a little bit. We'll, we'll know in just a little bit why Jesus why Jesus' title as Lord has to be God, because we're going to learn in chapter 2 that it means He's God. He's in very nature God. And then at the end it says to declare Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord taken there from the Old Testament reference of God being Lord that everyone bows uh, before and proclaims him as their Savior. So we notice now that this is all based in the Old Testament for us to understand who, who God is. God is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But when we see um, 
And the Lord is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when we see Paul writing, he's generally referring to God as the Father, the Lord as in Jesus. And then he says, this is my prayer that you may grow in depth, your love may grow through your knowledge and through your insight. That is so important. That's what we're doing, isn't it? We're not just loving, uh, learning to love more by being more emotional. We're learning to love God more and others more by knowing more about the nature of God and his plan for our lives. And he wants us to be blameless. He wants us to discern what is right. He wants us to be righteous and holy, ready for the, the day Jesus excuse me, returns so that we can bring praise to God, God the Father, not going to where we haven't been before. Verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Well, what has happened to him? He got arrested in Jerusalem. The Jews were trying to kill him. He appealed to Caesar and is now in Rome. He is in chains. He is now saying, I want you to think about this. What has happened to me has actually served the advancement of the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Everything we are suffering, even now in this culture, is giving God glory and telling the world about Jesus. He said, and because of my chains, because he's literally on house arrest, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. How many know when we first were persecuted, a lot of us felt fear, but as we saw the others going through it, we said, we can do this by God's grace, and all of us encouraged each other, especially by looking at the sufferings of those who endured more than we were enduring. Paul is saying, now because I'm going through this, everyone's not afraid anymore. They're seeing the courage that I have in Christ and they're seeing the advancement of the gospel, and it's encouraging them. Courage is in them now. Courage is being infused in them. When you are encouraging somebody, you're taking courage, and you're putting it into them. Amen? It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others of goodwill. The latter do so out of love. Uh, the latter do so out of love knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what doesn't matter, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Now, we don't know the exact situation that he's talking about here, but he, he basically contrasts two kinds of gospel preachers, the ones who are motivated like the Philippians, to do the gospel work and are no longer afraid because of the suffering that he's having, and then others who are doing it now to get attention. They want to be now the Fox News. They want to be the ones that's in front of everybody saying, I'm a Christian too, try to come and get me and get all the attention, and then get to Christians giving them money because now they have to support them, right? Because they are attention grabbers. They're, they're, they're ambulance chasers. And Paul is saying, that's not what I'm doing. I'm here not because it was my intention to play the martyr and set up a, set up a GoFundMe. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm doing is preaching because the gospel needs to go forth. But then he says, honestly, whether they're doing it out of that motive or the right motive, I'm just happy people are talking about Jesus now, that the word is going forth. Now, can we use this excuse to give 
bad advice to cults and to others. Well, I'm just glad Jehovah Witnesses are talking about Jesus. It's not Islam. Can we do that? No, because remember, it's not a false gospel. We go to his other letters in Galatians, like chapter 1, where it says, if anyone preaches a gospel other than this, let them be accursed, anathema. So he's not uh, affirming false gospels. What he is affirming is the right gospel done with false motives. He's saying the gospel is still good. They're still saying it's all about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. And for that I rejoice, but I don't like their motives. I don't like their motives. So he's not affirming a false gospel. He's not going to contradict what he said in Galatians. He's affirming the right gospel even though it has bad motives. And haven't we had to do that quite often in our culture. We go, I don't agree with this person. I don't like what they're doing. But I do affirm they're still saying the gospel. I still thank God that Joel Osteen preaches the gospel. He doesn't preach it much. He, he clouds it with a lot of other things, but he still believes for a person to go to heaven, for the most part, you know, if you asked him that, he would say to believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, you know, confess him as Lord. The same thing is with many other folks that we may not feel comfortable supporting them in their, their works. Now, some may say they have a false gospel. They have to prove that because I don't hear them saying a false gospel, a gospel of works, or a gospel believing in a different God, like a Jehovah Witness gospel or Mormon gospel. The gospel that they are preaching, like Hillsongs and a lot of these other folks, it is the right gospel. It is the right gospel. Like Carl Lentz was preaching the right gospel, but he had terrible motives terrible motives. And a lot of people in Hillsong have the right gospel, but they have terrible motives, terrible methods, and they need to check themselves before they wreck themselves. Amen? Because God's going to judge them. Same thing with Ravi Zachariah, not just to pick on Hillsong. Great gospel. You can never find him preaching a false gospel, but terrible in his behavior towards women and his, his integrity. Absolutely disgusting and terrible. And it frightens me for him that he might have heard, depart from me for I never knew you. Because It was coming out at the days of his death. He never confessed. It looked like he kept it as a secret to die with. And that, to me, is an unbeliever. If you have abused and been sexually perverse, as the Bible says, no one will inherit the kingdom of God who are like that, right? And, uh, you know, you now stand before God. I think he's going to say, you know, you did this. You know, they're they're going to say, I did this, this, and that. And he's going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Amen. Let's keep going. So, We rejoice in the right gospel being preached, even if people are doing it wrong. Yes, and I will, this verse 18, continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now notice that the Spirit is the possession of who? Jesus possesses the Spirit. Oh, but hold on. I thought God possessed the Spirit. I thought it says in other of Paul's writings that it's the Lord or God who possesses the Spirit. You know, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the Spirit of the Lord, right? Well, doesn't that just tie together with everything that we've just been learning about the nature of the Trinity? Look at Philippians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. For it is we who are of the circumcision who serve God by His... Oh... So the Spirit belongs to the Father, and according, according to 3, verse 3, God's Spirit, and then according to Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, the Spirit belongs to Jesus. Hmm. Very interesting. 
So if I say the Spirit belongs to me, I have to have authority over the Spirit. And we believe that the Father has authority over the Son, and the Father and Son have authority over the Spirit. But can I have authority as a mere creature over the Spirit? Can an angel have authority over the Spirit, yes or no? You guys took a long time to answer that. That should have been an obvious question. If the Spirit belongs to someone, if something belongs to you, if I say this is mine, do I have authority over this? If I say this is mine, do I have authority over this? Okay, now we just, I know, come on, third-year student, you know, we're, we're being patient with them, but, right, they're getting it. If I say the, this belongs to me, do I have authority over this? Okay, when Jesus, it says that it's Jesus' Spirit, that in the passage here it says, by God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that the Spirit belongs to Jesus just as much as it belonged to God in chapter 3, verse 3, then doesn't that mean if Jesus has authority over the Spirit, he must be equal with the Father who has authority over the Spirit? Now, someone may say, well, if you have authority over someone, then that means you cannot be equal with them in nature. No, I have authority over people like you, but I'm still equal with you in nature. What it's showing us is that Jesus has equal authority with the Father. Because they'll try to say at sometimes Jehovah Witnesses or others that Jesus is a God, monolatry, but there are other gods in the kingdom of God, like angels, that God oversees. And Jesus is like the angel Michael that has a lot of authority, does a lot of things, but he's still not equal in authority to the Father. Here we see with the possession of the Spirit, the Father and Son share equally the authority over the Spirit who we already know is God in nature. How can the Son have authority over the nature of God via the person of the Spirit without himself being equal to the Father, equal in nature himself? It is powerful when you run this back and forth, back and forth, every which way you can imagine this. The Trinity, the Trinity, the triune nature of God is being displayed to us over and over and over again. Paul has no problem saying that the possession of the Spirit belongs to Jesus. He has no problem saying that, just like he said in the next chapter, it belongs to God. Because Jesus is equal in authority to the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean because the Holy Spirit is under the authority of the Father and Son that he's not very God? No, he's called very God in the other places that we've learned. He does the very things of God, right? So what we, what we just learned from this is that there is what we call an economic chain of authority in the nature of God. Just like there's an economic, an economy, a dividing, not a dividing, but a, a, a dispersing of something called authority in my home. I have authority over my wife. My wife and I have authority over our children. My wife and I and our children have authority over guests that come into our home because we do things a certain way. So if my daughter says, take off your shoes, then everybody should take off their shoes, right? Please put away this over here. Then, then they do it because that's in my home. They know my rules, right? The same thing is in the triune nature of God. The Son and the Spirit submit to Father. Uh, the Son and the Spirit submit to the Father, but the Spirit also submits to the Son and the Father. Do you get that? Okay. And so the Spirit is still very God in his nature as well. It's just he is sent out coming forth from the Father and the Son. So he says, I want to come to you. And I'm not ashamed, but, but will have sufficient courage. So that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
So let's just uh, read the start again in verse um, Read the end of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So good things are going to come out of this. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, once again, how can Christ be exalted in his body unless Christ can be omnipresent in everyone else's body too? Don't you have to be omnipresent to be with Paul and to be with the church and to be, you know, with all of the other believers? That's the attribute of Jesus. Jesus is going to be with you and never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is going to be with you and never leave you nor forsake you. So the nature of God is seen in the promise that he wants Christ to be in him and be exalted. How is he going to do that? By the first prior verses, by the Spirit. The Spirit's going to exalt Christ in him. And he's praying that the Spirit will exalt Christ in that church as well because he doesn't want to see them backslide. And then he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he's giving all of his life for the gospel, for the things of God. Verse 22, if I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it's more necessary for me that I remain, for you, that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you and for the progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So he says, man, I do feel like going home. You know, he's ran a long race at this point. He's had a lot of shipwrecks. He's been beaten. He's been, you know, left for dead, stoned. He has been uh, betrayed by many, many people. He's gone through a lot. And he's saying, yeah, there's a part of me now that's just ready to go home and be with Jesus. But I want to be with you and keep working for the sake of Christ. And that gives me joy. And I want you to boast in that, that when you think of me, he's saying, when you think of me, I want you to boast in Christ Jesus. Talk about how good Jesus is, that he's keeping me alive, that he's using me for his purpose, and that by his spirit, we're continuing the things of God. You know, the things of God are spreading with signs and wonders and miracles. God is speaking. God is moving. And so that's a great place for us to start uh, to end today. Amen? Amen. And to start by being challenged to live our lives like Paul, even in the midst of persecution. So I wish I would have had more time for application. What time does your next class start? Okay, so let's pray, and I'll take some questions at the end. I wish I had more time, like I said, for participation, asking you guys questions. But you guys were a little tough today. And then I didn't have the microphone on, so I messed up. Father, thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you have given us your spirit to do the work of the ministry. We pray like Paul that we will live for you and that even if we die, we will die for you. And that in all of our labor, it will benefit others so that they may come to know and love you. Because, God, we know we're already saved and ready to meet you. But, Lord, if we're here to live another day, may it be so that others can know and love you. Our children, our family, the community around us. Use us for your glory in these latter days. Fill our hearts with your love and your knowledge so we can impart it to others. And may we be so full of the Spirit that he flows through us to the world around us, changing uh, the people, changing the, the governments, changing the way we even have our families and businesses. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. And everybody said...
Amen. Let's give it up.